When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade, and welcome, everybody, to Energy Matters. I'm here with my co-host, John Noel. John, how's it going? Uh, mighty fine. And we've got some great guests today. Back uh, this week is Sean Aurora from Georgia Tech. He's the director of the Candida Building, went to Emory, uh, also got a law degree from Emory. We had a great time when he was here in the studio. But we really want to drill down this week and talk about the Candida Building and some of the things you guys have done. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. And also sitting in uh, is Rick Husak who's uh, the manager for Clean Energy Biofuels out in Monroe, Georgia, which is in our listening area here in Athens. And we'll be talking later on in the show about some of the cool things they do with French fry and chicken oil uh, and running vehicles on those. But uh, in this segment, we're going to talk about their solar array, John, that they have out there. Rick, welcome. Thanks, Tim. And great to have both of you guys in the studio today. So, Sean, let's jump into what you guys are doing at the Candida building, uh, because it is uh, a cool project. I know you're very proud of it, so uh, we're going to dive into that and the things that is, that's really made you uh, able to give leadership to that, and that's some of the personal stuff that you've done uh, at, your, at your own home and in your personal life. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, thank you. You know, um, you know, walking the walk, my wife and I felt were really was really important. So when we bought our home in 2012, and when we decided this is the home that we really like, one of the things that we asked the real estate agent was we asked for the owner's electricity bills. And quite frankly, he was shocked because no one had really asked for that. But it was an important thing for us to understand uh, because we knew we were going to change things with the home after we had it. So the previous owners of that house, it was two adults and one toddler. That's important because we were going to be three adults. My mom lives with us. So that set a sort of an occupancy baseline. Very first thing we did is we uh, changed out all the incandescent bulbs to CFLs. And then we took a look at the lights we used the most and we switched those to LEDs because back then LEDs were still kind of expensive. That's so true. between changing the lighting and then just changing behavior, the very first year, the full year that we lived in the house, our electricity bill was cut in half. Wow. Just from- From the previous owner From to the you. previous owner to us. Yeah. Behavioral you know, and lighting. Beha- yeah. And it was really behavior and lighting. You know, uh, I, John, I think about this house that we've just moved into, we downsized, and I went through and changed out the bulbs in exactly the way you're talking about. And the bulbs that- that we tend to leave on all the time, almost like as safety lights. Mm-hmm. Like my wife likes to leave a couple of lamps on, or my kids maybe that come in late. And those are the ones we made LED that we're going to run all the time, maybe even 
all night. So that's good practice for our listeners. Yeah, it, it was easy. Now it's even easier. The price of LEDs have dropped so so much. So then in 2013, we actually did some weatherization. The house was a little leaky, so we hired some professionals. They uh, weatherized the windows, sealed as many of those leaky areas in the house as they could. We did some uh, more insulation. We didn't get foam insulation, but we did improve the insulation in the attic. And after all of that, would you believe that our electricity consumption went up? How did it go up? We had a kid. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so we, we actually, uh, we actually the did. Punchline. Yeah, we had a kid. We did the weatherization in anticipation of that. We knew our electricity consumption would go up. So our electricity bill went up, but then in 2014, as compared to the year before, it went down 6%. 2015, it went down again. 2016, it went down again because we, we adjusted to that new reality and we, we kept on through behavior change getting our um, electricity consumption down and we switched out more of those cfls with leds because the price kept on going down so are you running mostly led bulbs in your house almost all of the lights in the house are now leds what i'm waiting for is as a cfl burns out i replace it with an led yeah and didn't you eventually put solar i did on your home yeah and what year did you do that so our we we got solar through solarized decatur decab which is a bulk purchase solar program the solar went live almost like December 30th, 2016. So we 2017 was the first full year that we had solar. And at the end of that year, I was able to compare the amount of electricity we, we purchased from the grid compared to the year before, and it was almost 20% decrease. So wow. are you selling your power back to the utility, or are you using it on your house? The, the amazing thing is, is the amount I'm selling back to the utility. The, when it's sunny, the amount of solar that's produced, I, I almost can't use it all during the daytime. So, um, yeah, in the summertime, a lot of that electricity is being sold back to Georgia Power for about nothing. three. <laughs> yeah, so you're, for nothing. For you're not on a special contract with them. You're, you're consuming most of your energy, energy and just selling a little bit back, right? I'm consuming most of the energy in the summertime. I'm actually selling most of it in the summer. Excuse me. I'm consuming most of the energy in the wintertime. I'm selling a big chunk of it in the summertime. Yeah. How about you, John? You've got the solar. Are you consuming most of yours or are you selling um, some of it or all of it back? Uh, Tim, you forget I have a battery. So See, I'm I, I don't storing have that as much as I can and then using it at night. That's so right. I, my the batteries. Cell, the batteries, the game changer. So while, while, while uh, Sean... And, and, and you pardon the term, Sean. Well, Sean's getting screwed, and I used to get screwed for years because I had solar before before 2016. Uh, now we have the option, and he has it, and others will have it in the future, to get batteries which will allow us to inventory all that excess power and then use it, which our effective rates are 10 or 12 cents. Well, yeah. in fact, when Solarized Decatur Decab was launched in 2016, Batteries were still... Oh, yeah, too early. Too early. No question. But the amazing thing is the very next Solarize campaign, Solarize Dunwoody... Yeah, half uh, the people uh, did batteries. If not more. It was pretty amazing. And then Solarize Atlanta, which is just concluded, same situation. Almost everyone who's purchasing solar uh, through those programs Mm -hmm. is also getting a battery. Let me go to Rick. Rick, you work out in Monroe uh, in Walton County, and even though you do biofuels, which we're going to talk about in a bit... 
you you guys have solar there and you're behind the meter how has the solar worked out because you don't have it roof mounted you've got it uh well we started out with solar barns so my wife and i bought part of the family farm we renovated a barn and uh once we renovated barn, we're looking at more sustainable ways to to deal with energy. And we our plant is just right down the road, um, and uh, we put in what were called solar barns at the time. That's cool. And you're essentially creating a barn and putting solar panels on top. We got a USDA REAP grant uh, for that, which gave us 25% funding, and then coupled with a 30% credit. Uh, it kind of helped us monetize that. Wow, about so, half of it was paid for. So yeah, let's, let's walk through it. that. There's a 30% federal tax credit on solar, so that's right off the bottom line. You $10,000 in taxes, now you're paying seven, and and then you get a 25% grant from the Ag Department, the USDA, USDA Green yeah. Program. Yeah. So as Tim said, that's a 55% subsidy of your project. Yeah, and if you're in a rural area and you've got a business that's got a good sustainable goal. The USDA wants to support you on that, but it's a competitive grant. It's based on points on uh, what your power is going to do and what the return on you. investment is. Good wow. You. So here we got a couple different applications, and and I, I know you know John's a little cynical about you know the rates and everything for rooftop solar, but you know where we have put our emphasis in Georgia is on utility scale solar, and clearly, I mean, I'm a commissioner. I'm you know I'm voting on these policies and. I felt like that we weren't going to be able to be a Hawaii or a California or an Arizona, and that I, I did not want us to be subsidizing this. I didn't want a renewable portfolio standard for the legislature to set. set. I really wanted something that was going to actually put downward pressure on rates, and that's exactly what all of this gigantic utility-scale solar is. John, I know it's not perfect, but it has— Oh, it's got downward pressure, all right. <laughs> it's so downward, I don't get paid anything. I think—and I think I think Sean's wrong. I think we're getting a cent and a half. I honestly believe we are getting a cent and a half from Georgia Power and our residential systems. Now, the reality is it doesn't matter. It's but, so small. But isn't, isn't the way to do this, Sean, when you're putting solar on your house, to scale it where you're not feeding stuff back on the grid? Isn't the best way to do it where you— where you are using most all of it, isn't in, in that way to, to, the way to get most for your money? And it seems like it is. Yes, but then you you get into a situation, Commissioner Eccles, where what if uh, nobody's home? Depending on what time of year it is, like right now, in a cold winter day that's sunny, my solar system, as it's sized, is going to provide me the electricity I need. So, if it's sized right for the winter time. It's probably undersized for the summertime. If it's sized right for the summertime, it might be undersized for the wintertime. And a lot of people, they just say, how much solar fits on my roof? And that's, that's the calculation. Um, the average residential solar system, rooftop solar system in the state across all of the solarized programs has been f- about five, mega, uh, five kilowatts about five kilowatt system and even even then you're selling some back to the to the utility and what i'm trying to understand is walton emc that's the utility we're on they were at three cents and i understand uh the whole thing about having the infrastructure in place Um, but when we started the georgia power is at 17 cents 
And so I guess understanding why do uh, talking about buyback? Yeah, the buybacks. Yeah. Why mm-hmm. are they, why is such a disparity in, in the buybacks? Yeah. So I do feel a little ganged up on. Oh, oh I yeah. Say, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm, across I'm from me to my audience is 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 three <laughs> guys who all have solar. Okay. <laughs> and the decision makers. And I'm the decision maker the on the we other can side. Get it, guys. I tell go. you what, you guys hang around. We're going to come back, and we're going to fight this out oh, like man. sustainability leaders. So jo- scrappy, boys. Stick, stick around, and we're going we're gonna to tell you why I did what I did. This is Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make. Like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit. And the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. GasSouth. The difference is good. Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your $1, $2, or $5 checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. Welcome back to Energy Matters. Support for Energy Matters, and perhaps fittingly so, comes from the Georgia Solar Energy Association. GA Solar helps consumers decide how to access solar energy in a way that saves them money on their power bills and reduces their environmental footprint. They help them find skilled solar professionals they can trust and provide guides to evaluate their solar options. See more at gasolar.org. And when we last left this show a few minutes ago, my three guests were ganging up on me in the studio. Uh, John Noel, who always gangs up on me, oh, former state representative so. and, and Democrat. Uh, and um, Rick Huzak, uh, who is being nice, uh, first time on the show. He's the manager of Clean Energy Fuels. But he asked a question about uh, the price of solar. Welcome uh, back to the segment, Rick. Thank you. Yeah. And Sean Aurora, who works for Georgia Tech and has solar on his home, formerly a South Face employee and both a uh, Emory history major grad and law school grad and now directs the Candida building. And you've got solar on your house, too. Right, Sean? We have solar on the house. And one, one thing I want to make sure that your listeners understand about solar and why I'm so passionate about solar is that it is a major economic driver in this country. Uh, I was just looking today. Yahoo Finance stated that solar panel installer is the fastest growing job in eight different states including florida and north carolina that's cool so in 2017 that equated to about forty thousand dollar a year job so if florida and north carolina can have solar installer being the top growing job i'd love to see georgia have solar installer being a top paying job well in fairness to tim this I, i'll beat up on him all day long but in fairness to him there are fewer there, there, there's nobody. Maybe Bob McDonald and you really are the two greatest advocates for solar on the Public Service Commission, and I am really grateful 
for that. I mean, ir- irrespective of politics, I, I'm 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 excited about that. Well, thank you, and Bubba's eighty two and we'll be wrapping up his going tenure on 60 on a, uh, he's got he's spry and, he is spry he's, yeah. he's wrapping up his tenure and mm. he really i think has been kind of the father of this uh of this solar movement in georgia and yes it's not exactly the way that everybody would love it and and i, and I don't know that there's any perfect way to do it i uh, i i want us to continue to be friendly to rooftop solar developers and, and rooftop solar and give as much as we can for that but clearly the path that we were able to get consensus on on the commission was a utility-scale path that was driven towards market-based pricing, doing large 200, 500,000. I, I cut the ribbon the other day for a 2,400-acre solar array. Wow. Uh, and, yes, the price is cheap, but you know who benefits from that cheap price? Well, every single rate payer in the yeah, state of Georgia. Right. So if you want to look at our utility-scale solar and we have over 2,000 megawatts in the ground, it is something that puts downward pressure on everyone's rate. Now, it doesn't necessarily help you, John, in the price that you're selling back at, which you're not really because you've got batteries. It's not really helping you, Sean, in selling back because it's a really cheap price. And Rick, you're on a you're you're not even with Georgia Power. You're with a, a an EMC over there that you're selling back to. So uh, I think we can all agree that it's not perfect. But one thing that we can agree on is that all of this is good for the state, right, Sean? Absolutely, and for the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think something that's near and dear to me is it being in biofuels. We've got to have more discussion about emissions. We're in non-attainment. Walton County is coming into a non-attainment zone, and solar really deals with the emissions issues. So yeah. the more we have dialogue, not just about affordability and diversity and sustainability, but we talk about the emissions and the impact it's having on kids and asthma, oh, man. they're all direct correlations. So the sooner we broaden that dialogue, I think the better off I we'll live be. in the city of Atlanta. This is a huge issue. I mean, we've got buses running around burning diesel fuel out of there and kids with asthma rates that are off the charts. Crazy. Let, let's, let's take a turn to this Candida project that you're working on, Sean, because it's on campuses like the University of Georgia and like Georgia Tech where we are doing research and it is a laboratory, if you will. Uh, and you guys are doing some things on that building that I think there are going to be companies that look at it and say, wow, I wonder if I could do that. Tell us about some of the things that you're excited about on that Candida building. So I'm going to give a quick background about it. The Candida Building for Innovative Sustainable Design is a commitment of $30 million from the Candida Fund. So the Candida Fund, which is a family philanthropic organization that's based in Atlanta, uh, is paying for it 100%. So this isn't paid for by taxpayers. No, This no. is paid for by a private, private foundation. It's, yeah. it's philanthropist. That's now, a great story. It's a great story. Itself. Yeah, but having said that, Georgia Tech has made a major commitment. There's, I've, I've cannot begin to tell you how many people on Georgia Tech's campus have been committed to this for three-plus years. So the expectation is that this building, after it's finished, will be the most environmentally sustainable building of its kind in the Southeast. So that's a tall order. How do you convince people that you've actually achieved that mission? Well, it's by certifying to something called the Living Building Challenge. So the Living Building Challenge is recognized as being the most strict certification program. So we're lead and LEED Platinum has taken the market, which is tremendous, 
Living Building Challenge says let's push it even further. And it's built around seven petals, as in flower pe- flower petals. How cute. And uh, it's, it's uh, yeah. an allegory of saying, you know, a, a petal gives back what it takes. It just comes, it takes, gives back, and then it's That's gone. Cool. Yeah. So the petals include health and happiness, uh, excuse me, health and wellness. It includes equity, includes beauty, but also it's water, it's waste, and it's energy. And you have to be net positive water, net positive waste, and net positive energy. That's a whole lot of net positives. It's a lot, lot of net positives. And the reason why we focus on these net positives is that buildings in the United States consume about 12% of the water, about 71% of the electricity, 40% of the landfill waste comes from the construction industry. So you want to not just minimize those impacts, you want to be positive. You want to give back like a flower does. And then the CO2. CO2 emissions, about 40% of the CO2 in the United States is attributable to buildings. So let's just focus on the net energy. How does the Candida building get to net positive energy, which means it produces more electricity in one year than it consumes? It just seems like it would be impossible to do without a lot of solar or a wind turbine or something. So you're correct. There is a lot of solar. But the key to solar is to minimize the amount that you need. So the first thing that Candida... Hyper efficiency. yes. Yeah. Is that actually what you call it? Hyper efficiency? We call it passive design. Uh-huh. Passive design says, let's take, uh, let's take advantage of the natural features that we have. Let's, let's orient the building properly. Huge windows. Let's... Light coming in. Lots of light, light coming light in. Yeah. Making sure that that light also doesn't then give you unintended heat gain. Right. So you have shading... Uh, you make the building very efficient, very tight. So using all of those passive design features, we've gotten the building to 66% more efficient than a similar building. Then you have non-passive, such as a very efficient HVAC system. We have 63 fans in the building that are going to keep the air circulating to keep people comfortable. Wait a second. You're not talking about little box fans or fans on the wall or whole house fans. What kind of fans do you mean? Well, those are the big fans that you see on the ceilings. Like a ceiling fan. Yeah, ceiling fans. Yeah, Yeah, that just moves the air. Moves the air. Moves the air and keeps people comfortable. And then on top of all of that, we've got a 328-kilowatt solar array. And that's that's a very big solar array. (laughs) And the solar array is designed to also provide some of that shade because it creates a canopy, like an overhang, a front porch, so to speak. So the way that the building has been uh, designed, we think that the building's electricity consumption is going to be 330 megawatts on year one. And the solar production is going to be 450 megawatts on year one. So right out of the gate, year one, this positive. building will be not just net positive, but way net positive. How many and square feet is it? It's 37,000 square feet indoor with another 10,000 square feet of outdoor programmable space. And very vaulted ceilings, too. Very open. Very open. Yeah. yeah. 
very open. Uh, yeah, and I noticed I, uh, my friend uh, John McFarland uh, with Working Buildings was giving a presentation on this at Georgia Power's uh, 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 talk recently, energy efficiency talk, and he talked about how they're recapturing some of the heating and cooling off of the um, underground lines, tapping into the to Georgia Tech's. Uh, I'll defer to you, Sean, for the actual term. The chiller, the chiller, the water. chilled water yeah, system, which runs underground in these um, between all the buildings and has a central plant for production. So they were able to utilize some of the existing structures in infrastructure on campus to their advantage. Yeah, a district solution. Yeah. Yeah, it's a district solution. So one thing that's unique about the Living Building Challenge, it doesn't stop at the design and the construction. You also then have to prove that you're meeting the strict requirements. So you have to operate the building to the Living Building Challenge certification standards for 12 continuous months. So that means we have to be net positive water for 12 months. We have to be net positive energy for 12 months. And that's when you become a living building. Yeah. Now what Georgia Tech is going to do, we aim to keep the building as a living building for the entirety of its life. It's going to be a living laboratory. So we can learn best practices, what works, what could be done better, what maybe didn't work as well as we thought. And we, we hope that this building influences how Georgia Tech manages its other buildings on campus, how we construct campuses in the future, and how the industry reacts to what we've done. He talked about composting toilets before. That'll be interesting to see yeah, how that yeah. works. So stick around. We're, we're going to keep Sean over and uh, finish out this conversation about this incredible building. And then we want you to hear this phenomenal story from Rick about what they're doing with French fry oil and chicken grease down there and the trucks that are running on it. This is Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Sterling Planet. Welcome back to Energy Matters. Energy Matters is supported by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory. For nearly seven decades, Arnold, Golden, Gregory, LLP has established a strong record of helping growing enterprises become industry leaders. Today, their team of attorneys who practice in more than 25 areas of law continue to expand AGG's reputation for helping public and private businesses grow their businesses. AGG is committed to staying on the leading edge of new developments that affect their clients' industries and business strategies. They are ready to help a new generation of emerging companies and the technologies we're talking about today achieve success. And we appreciate their weekly support of Energy Matters, Tim. Yeah, we're talking with Sean Aurora, who works for the uh, Georgia Tech. That's a name I know our listening audience, they don't like to hear that very much here. We're inside the Bulldog Bubble, but he's the director of the Candida Building, and it is a really cool project. He went to Emory and uh, works at Tech now, formerly worked at South Face. And Rick Husak uh, is the manager of uh, Clean Energy Biofuels. And Sean, I want to wrap up talking about Candida Building and, and kind of switch over to fuels because... Uh, decarbonizing transportation that's one of the the big things going on and then reusing uh, and recycling and that's really what Rick and his crew is doing they're taking something that maybe otherwise would just be tossed away and turning into something valuable so why don't we just remind our audience we're talking about a new building uh, that's being built with private funds down at Georgia Tech that's going to be just uh, an incredible uh, sustainability project 
because of the standard that you're building to. Remind us of the standard. It's called the Living Building Challenge. It's a very strict standard. It's, uh, it requires, among other things, net positive energy, net positive water, and net positive waste. So one of the things that I really find interesting with what you're doing, Rick, is that you're taking waste and turning it into something that's beneficial, can be reused. The Candida building, which is going to be a classroom, mostly it's going to be a classroom, teaching lab, auditorium, we have strict requirements on sending less waste to the landfill. I mean, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around net positive waste, but you have construction debris. We're going to divert 98% of that. That's a whole lot. It's a whole lot. And then 2% of it will just have to go to the garbage because it's, it's, it's not recyclable, it's not reusable. But the way you get to net positive is for many years now, Georgia Tech's looked across campus and said, what can we salvage? So the alumni house needed a new roof. It's got tile roof, slate tile roof. Went in, took all that slate tile off. So instead of throwing it in the garbage, that slate tile is going to go into the bathrooms of the Candida building. Tech Tower famous landmark had to have some of the pine wood removed well that pine wood is going to be the stair treads in the candida building our friends at the life cycle building center great went around town and found wood two by four pieces of wood from georgia's film industry that would have ended up in the garbage we're using that wood in the candida building so in that way we will have diverted more waste from the landfill than we sent to the landfill. And that's how you get the net positive. Wow. Cool. And so, Rick, let's think about the feedstock. I don't know if that's the right word of, of the supply of material coming to you in tanker trucks, right? What drives up at your place that you're storing and then and what exactly are y'all doing with it? So when we got started in 2008, feedstock really was a big issue because you have to have a very low free fatty acid oil. Uh, and we started partnering with Fieldale Farm. So that was a chicken fat story. Ooh, that's good stuff. That was good stuff. It smells great. Oh, yeah. But what we found out very quickly is as a commodity. They'll either take the oil and they'll feed it, uh, they'll put it in feed, um, or they would divert it to uh, other biodiesel facilities. And back in the early 2008, 2009, the, the feedstock commodity was highly volatile. So very quickly, we produced, I think, a, a million gallons. And at the end of the year, we looked at our, our net profit, and there was nothing there. So oh. we ended up teaming up with uh, South uh, Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. They're based up in Knoxville, and they had a biodiesel plant, a very small plant in Atlanta. Um, and they had a great client with Whole Foods Distribution Center. Long story short, they weren't making biodiesel uh, anymore, and so they had us uh, making a biodiesel for them. They also had collections from restaurants, so we ended up teaming with them, bought them out, and we started uh, collecting used cooking oil from restaurants. Cool. Now, a while back, restaurants used to pay you to get rid of it because it was a waste product. But then, as people realized that the, the use, it was yeah, it was yeah. a value product. Um, and so we slowly started to build our used cooking oil collections. So now we're in uh, over a thousand restaurants in Athens and Atlanta. We pick up from Georgia State University, UGA. Uh, when I tell my son, he goes he goes to school at UGA, and I say, when you get this hall and you're 
eating french fries that oil is going to make our biodiesel oh, so cool. long story short we we you have to get to a feedstock that's the lowest cost feedstock and getting right. into the restaurants and dealing with that collection uh we have been able to grow um and we've kind of uh transportation was a big one whole foods distribution center services pretty much the whole southeast so their fleet uh we put a a 12,000 gallon tank at their facility and they fuel Great. all their vehicles with it. So they're, uh, if you run 100% biodiesel, you've got 87% less carbon, 75% less emissions. So obviously when you blend it down, almost all the trucks on the road and cars are warranted to run a B20 blend. So that means 20% biodiesel, 80%. So we diesel. have a company vehicle that, that runs diesel and we do what I think is termed splash blending. So sometimes on a perfect day in a hot summer, we'll be at 100%. Right. I don't know that the diesel, uh, that, the, that the factory necessarily loves that, but I, I do, we do it anyway. Um, well, we got, we've got loyal people. sometimes in the winter, we're splash blending at 20%. Right, right. And, and that's the, the one thing about... Being 80% diesel, 20% your stuff. With the, with the biodiesel, when it does get cold, it can gel. Mm-hmm. Now, they've come out with something... Um, it's called renewable diesel, and it basically has the exact same properties as diesel fuel. They'll run it through. Wow. They can co-locate uh, vegetable oil into these refineries now that are producing diesel fuel, and they crack it, and they make something called renewable diesel. And that is the big renewable diesel plants are in Louisiana uh, and then California because California has the carbon credit. So is that a competitor to you, or are you selling your product to them? It is because it can be in the pipeline. Okay. With biodiesel, they typically do not blend in the pipeline. Um, for example, in Atlanta, they don't want to have any biodiesel in the diesel because that supplies Hartsfield Airport. Okay. So they don't want to have any biodiesel in there. But they can blend renewable diesel because it doesn't have any gelling uh, concerns. So does that make the transportation of b20 your fuel more expensive because you don't have the ability to pipeline it's got to be trucked in well our fuel typically is about 10 to 20 if you bought b100 it'd be about 10 to 20 cents cheaper than diesel fuel but we've got to blend it we've got to get it into distribution um and the reason that it's 10 to 20 percent cheaper is the 10 people, to 20% or 10 to 20 cents? I'm sorry, 10 to 20 cents Okay, cheaper. you had my attention either way, yeah. but one was a little more exciting. And, you know, it depends on where things are with legislation. Sometimes we've seen it as 40 to 60 cents cheaper. Yeah. But what happens is the big uh, truck stops and all of that, they blend it and then they pocket that difference. Uh-huh. It's called blend economics. Um, I mean, you got to have incentives for them to want to put it into their facilities. Gotcha. So when you go to a truck stop, and are all of them going to have a B20 pump? Is that going to be – is it is it pretty uh, available? Yeah, you won't even know that you're getting biodiesel unless you look very carefully. It will have this sticker in Georgia that says may contain up to 20% biomass-based diesel. So almost all of the truck stops in the southeast run uh, a B20 blend year-round. Now, up in, like, Minnesota and Illinois, they have mandates. So they're anywhere from a B5 to a B10 blend year-round. So it's it's definitely getting out there. And uh, what I love about it is you're taking a waste product and you're turning it into a fuel that yeah. is going to keep the jobs here. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be creating revenue for the state. Uh, and it's going to impact the environment. So I'm not buying Saudi Arabian oil. I'm buying chicken oil and and reprocessed restaurant oils and all the things right from here in Athens or wherever, right around here. 
and you're making some money in a home business here in Georgia. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're, I've been to your place and it looks like a moonshine still almost. You've yeah. got the, you've got just the little cover. It, it's not in a big barn. At least it wasn't when I was you out there. You need to come back. It's changed yeah. pretty drastically. Yeah. Wow. And you were making it in 500 gallon batches, but has that changed now? Are you making it in yeah, a larger we're batches? Yeah, doing, we're doing about, uh, our name play is about 2 million gallons. There's two operational <laughs> facilities now. There's one up in Rome, and they're about 15 million gallons, and then we're 2 million. But to give you an idea, a big biodiesel plant, uh, there's the one of the biggest is in uh, Louisiana. It's 250 million gallons. But then you hit renewable diesel, and they, uh, Darling and Valero did a joint venture in Norco, Louisiana. And they're they're going to be up to almost 750 million gallons a year, which is out this huge. So if you were making a prediction... You know, and we've made all kind of predictions on this show as we've uh, kind of looked at, okay, when will electric cars be disruptive? Uh, when, when is it going to be uh, scalable for utility and batteries, uh, solar and batteries together? Uh, if you're going to make a prediction about, you know, biofuels, what's it, what's it going to look like in the trucking industry in 10 or 20 years in regards to diesel? Will it all be renewable by then, you think, or is it going to be a while? Well, I think the the beautiful thing about the biodiesel is you don't have any change. It's the same thing with renewable diesel. You don't have to change your fleet out. The electric is starting to take hold in the big rig area, but it's just going to take time. And, you know, you we, we run about eight semis right now. Um, and when we buy a semi, it's about $150,000. Mm. So if you think about a small trucking operation, they've got $150,000 investment they're not going to get rid of that in 10 years. It's just going to take – so I think it's all of the above. It, it's going to be propane. It's going to be natural gas. It's going to be uh, biodiesel, renewable diesel, and electric. Well, stick around. We want to continue this conversation about alternative fuels, especially biofuels that are made right down the road from us here in Walton County, Georgia, and uh, Monroe. So I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. John, one of our sponsors for the show, Row Insulating Company, is doing a great job in and around Athens, being able to do a lot of what we talk about every single week on the show. You get, every time it gets cold, every time it gets hot, it's always a, it's always that attic that's the problem. And uh, you can attack windows, and that's going to cost you a cold fortune. It is insulation that can solve the problem. Hey, if you want to get this fixed, call 706-795-2854. That's 706-795-2854. Row Insulating Company. Row. Hey, it's Commissioner Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters. I want to tell you about Kevin Rowe and Rowe Insulating Company. If you need insulation anywhere within 60 miles of Athens, Georgia, you need to call 706 795 2854. It's important, isn't it, John? It's, it is the most important thing you can do in your house. It's the low-hanging fruit of everything that we talk about on Energy right. Matters every single week. That's exactly right. Yeah, call 706-795-2854. That's 706-795-2854. Row Insulating Company. Get comfortable. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm your host, Tim Eccles. In the studio with me, my co-host, John Noel. John? Hello, sir. I'm ready to talk about sticking it to the man. I, I think we got a guy down here that's sticking it to the Saudis. Yeah. Anybody else that's producing oil, we're he, producing it domestically. And he's talking about Rick Huzak of uh, Clean Energy Biofuels in Monroe, Georgia, in Walton County. And Sean Aurora from Georgia Tech, the director of the Candida Building. Sean, let's start with you. You've been a part of my clean energy road show that I've done now, I guess, for eight years. We started our ninth year, and we've talked about all kind of alternative fuel. But 
this biodiesel is not really something that we've gotten into before, and I'm intrigued really as I talk to Rick about this. So do you anticipate, as we think about the trucking industry of the future and diesel delivery trucks, uh, do you anticipate biodiesel, renewable diesel becoming a, a bigger fuel than it is now? Well, Rick and I were talking about that. It's, you know, one thing that's very different about the U.S. car market than Europe and other places in the world I've been to is how few diesel cars that we have. So when we think diesel, we do think trucks, right? Uh, interstate trucks. I'm learning a lot about this right now. The B20 I'm hearing is pretty much standard across the Southeast. And the one thing that I've looked at is the transition between conventional trucks to electric trucks and rick hit upon it there's a lot of investment that goes into buying a truck and it's going to take a long time to convert all of those diesel trucks to electric trucks so one would think that biodiesel is a stopgap and john you know one of the things you talked about was the saudis well one thing we need to remember in georgia is we don't we don't have oil reserves in georgia so biodiesel, that's like us drilling for oil here in our own state. We're, we're keeping more of that money in our state instead like of it. sending it to Louisiana and Texas. I love Louisiana. I love Texas, but I'd like to keep Georgia money in Georgia. Yeah, so it's kind of a Georgia-grown product. It's a Georgia-grown product. That. Rick, uh, I have a friend that owns a Zaxby's, and he runs an old Mercedes off of his own concoction. And then another friend that works for... Um, athens clark county in their bus barn and he runs an, an old f-250 that has an international harvester diesel engine in it on his own concoction and i mean these are obviously two two guys who you know are entrepreneurs and kind of inventors and and kind of out there but you guys have basically taken this and scaled it and you've commercialized uh biodiesel and taking essentially for our friends out there listening french fry oil chicken grease and other things that formerly were were probably i guess thrown into a landfill i don't know what we were doing with the stuff 30 or 40 years ago but you guys have found a very good purpose for it and you're making a living off of it aren't you yeah and, and i think the important thing to, to realize is this is in the early 2000s it was an infant industry um, now, to make biodiesel and sell it legally, you have to pass 21 ASTM tests. Holy mackerel. What is the that? ASTM methods range from you know what the flashpoint of the product is, what the acid level is, what the free monodye and tries are in the product. I mean, it's a whole Who comes litany. out? Who comes out and, and conducts those tests? It's, it's actually, uh, we have a, a lab at our facility, and then there's independent labs out there. But the EPA regulates this. The whole thing with renewable uh, fuel started during the Bush administration. He passed a renewable fuel standard, and that was more or less, hey, within our standard gasoline and diesel production in domestic production let's start having a percentage of that be renewable fuels and, and so b20 is 20 percent biodiesel uh, biodiesel you think about uh, our gasoline it could be up to 10 percent right and so in my state car uh, that current one i have is not flex fuel but the impala i had was a flex fuel so i was running the e85 right uh and that's more available now than it was when I when I got elected. So most of the racetrack stations now are selling that as a result of 
participating in our clean energy roadshow they made a commitment to do that in their new bill so i was that's cool really glad to see yeah, that under the current administration they're trying to push up to an e15 blend so any any gasoline you could have would have a 15 percent blend of ethanol and you think about sustainability i went down to that ethanol plant down in camilla georgia mm-hmm. and you know number two corn goes in the, the front of it and out the back you know comes the ethanol and then the distiller's grain that's sold into uh, basically, I guess it's the cow it's the corn without the the starch is being sold into cow feed, mm-hmm. and so 100 percent of the materials are being used. And think about Sean sustainability. That's what I think is that you're you're being a good steward with all of it. Uh, and and so I don't know as I think about what Rick and them are doing, and I've been out to his his facility. I'm excited about the future of this not that we're going to eat more chicken and and eat more french fries and provide more feedstock for them but the fact that that we can take this product and be able to use it to you know power in a more you know a, a cleaner way you know the fleets of trucks that run through our country and we're not only dealing with the fryer oil uh we bought a, a wastewater treatment facility up in ackworth oh, partnered wow. with a group apex environmental that does all the grease traps huh. in atlanta they service three thousand restaurants so a grease trap is about the nastiest stuff you can deal with it's it's the box between the sink and and the sewer um and so we'll go and suck that grease trap waste and we get something called brown grease out of that and you can make biofuel out of that. So instead of the big challenge for a lot of these wastewater treatment plants are people flushing their oil down the sink and then it clogs the sewer lines, we're able to get that really nasty brown grease and then blend that in with the yellow grease and make biodiesel out of it. So you can get to a really nasty material and turn it into a ASTM uh, fuel grade. And then it's the fun stuff like you know the recent Super Bowl. Uh, that oil from that stadium went to our plant indirectly through a collector because the collectors need to, you know, make money, obviously, because they're paying for it. But just in the Super Bowl, we got over 30,000 gallons of oil. Oh, cool. Wow. So how does it work? A collector has a little tanker truck of some sort? It's a vacuum truck. A vacuum truck. And they take that, I guess, on a regular route right. with customers that they've been able to acquire. And then they fill it up and they come to Monroe uh, and they empty it into your larger tanks. We have, so right now our fleet is about eight vacuum trucks and they'll go and they'll hit uh, the restaurants in the area. We have other collectors that they they don't refine the oil, they bring it to us. And then we put it in an 8,000 cone bottom, uh, 8,000 gallon cone bottom tank and we heat it up and that drops out the water and the sediment. And then we run it through a filtering process and bring it into our plant, and then through a process called transesterification, Whoa. we blend. Yeah, that's. I, I'm a liberal arts major. Say so that again. Trans what? Transesterification. You're essentially taking oil, which is high in monodye and oh, triglycerides, man. and you're running it through a chemical process with methanol, which is racing fuel, and a caustic. We use potassium hydroxide, and that chemical reaction basically takes out. All the monodye and triglycerides turns it into glycerin, which we then in turn sell as a fuel or a feed 
Um, and then the biodiesel as a resulting product has to still go through a lot of different steps. But in the end, you have a fuel that uh, w- is warranted to run in almost any vehicle right now up to a 20% blend. Holy mackerel. So incredible. Uh, well, this is actually going to be on the uh, on the exam for the UGA's chemistry class, <laughs> uh, I think. I didn't take chemistry. <laughs> I didn't either. One of the great things. Biology 102, I barely got out of that. Yeah. Keep me away from science. Liberal arts is yeah, so I, history, I, history I graduated at, up at Bowdoin College in Maine oh, with yeah, a liberal yeah. arts degree. <laughs> wow! Well, one of the things that I heard is that you're you're taking something that would cost the taxpayer money downstream That's right. if it clogged up the sewer lines or the wastewater, and you're pulling that out and turning it into something that's reused and is beneficial. That's right. what Tim heard. I watched his ears perk up when you said something about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm all about recycling and reuse. I mean, it just boils down to my commitment of stewardship as an evangelical. I feel like, you know, when God created the world, he gave Adam and Eve stewardship over that garden, and and that just continues on down the generation. So, obviously, it fits into, you know, in, into my into my faith. Uh, so, uh, but it is a great thing that you're doing, Rick. As you think about the challenges ahead for the industry and for you guys, uh, I mean, obviously you used to get the stuff free. You used to be paid to take it. Now you're having to buy it. Is it going to continue to stay a sustainable business? Well, I mean, this this gets to the point of having a level playing field. And the RFS that Bush put in uh, has been in place and survived. What's RFS stand for? Renewable Fuel Standard. Uh Um, And each year they elevate the amount. So, for example, they don't want to encourage the corn ethanol, so they capped it at 15 billion gallons, and that's kind of stayed. But cellulosic ethanol, where you take corn stover or something that has very low value and make ethanol, that continues to increase. And like biodiesel, switchgrass switch would be one, yeah. Uh, and biodiesel tends to increase as well because you know if you have the whole food for fuel debate, um, but that's been disproven multiple times. I think that, and we talked about this earlier, there's not one solution. There's got to be a multitude of solutions to this problem. Um, and as long as the price stays where it's competitive with diesel, uh, I think that it's going to be a great step in, in the future. And getting to your point, um, I do believe that one of the reasons I was in a software bra- background earlier, but when we had kids, I was thinking, well, my time on this earth, I really need to make an impact. And it wasn't an easy road, but I feel like that we all have a responsibility to give back and give our future generations uh, a world that they they can live in. Well, that's a a great place to end it today. Rick, good luck as you continue to use this material and make great, great fuels uh, down there in Monroe. And uh, Sean, thank you very much for being here and for your work on this candida building i can't wait to get to come take that. a tour yeah everyone who's listening come take a tour i'm looking forward to it and john it's been another great show another uh, great show uh, you, you and i could be on twitter uh, you're at uh, tim eccles at, at tim eccles, yeah, and, at tim eccles. And, and i'm at new energy guy and our shows at matters radio well you have been listening to energy matters because energy does matter and i hope you'll join us for another show i'm tim eccles have a great weekend When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. 
Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com.